0: Let's go to Genesis chapter 47, Genesis chapter 47 tonight. You know, I, as a pastor, as a preacher, I, I feel the pressure of short attention spans, you know, and I'm not trying to be facetious, I just, I, I observe the culture and I know that, that we are so inundated with media and immediate information that we really do have shorter attention spans. It's a it's something that sometimes we, we struggle with and that sort of thing. And so I always am a little bit hesitant to read a long passage of scripture. Uh, but I figure if you guys came back on Sunday night, you want to get into what the Bible says. And, uh, and I try to follow a, a biblical pattern on this. I don't I don't usually start with some funny story. I don't try to warm the audience up with a joke. I try to have the first thing that comes out to be the word of God because I want to give it the preeminence. And then go back and just let's explain what God said. You find that pattern in Nehemiah chapter 8. And so I take great consolation to know that Nehemiah and Ezra read the Bible to those people for four straight hours and they all stood and listened to it. And so... Hopefully you can endure for the next 27 verses that I'm about to read. Genesis 47, verse 1, Then Joseph came and told Pharaoh and said, My father and my brethren and their flocks and their herds and all that they have are come out of the land of Canaan, and behold, they are in the land of Goshen. And he took some of his brethren, even five men, and presented them unto Pharaoh. And Pharaoh said unto his brethren, What is your occupation? And they said unto Pharaoh, Thy servants are shepherds, both we and also our fathers. They said moreover unto Pharaoh, For to sojourn in the land are we come. For thy servants have no pasture for their flocks, for the famine is sore in the land of Canaan. Now therefore we pray thee, Let thy servants dwell in the land of Goshen. And Pharaoh spake unto Joseph, saying, Thy father and thy brethren are come unto thee. The land of Egypt is before thee. In the best of the land, make thy father and brethren to dwell in the land of Goshen. Let them dwell. And if thou knowest any men of activity among them, then make them rulers over my cattle. And Joseph brought in Jacob his father and set him before Pharaoh. And Jacob blessed Pharaoh. And Pharaoh said unto Jacob, How old art thou? And Jacob said unto Pharaoh, the days of the years of my pilgrimage are an hundred and thirty years. Few and evil have been the days of the years of my life, and have not attained unto the days of the years of the life of my fathers in the days of their pilgrimage. And Jacob blessed Pharaoh and went out from before Pharaoh. And Joseph placed his father and his brother and gave them a possession in the land of Egypt, in the best of the land. In the land of Ramses, as Pharaoh had commanded. And Joseph nourished his father and his brethren and all his father's household with bread according to their families. And there was no bread in all the land, for the famine was very sore, so that the land of Egypt and all the land of Canaan fainted by reason of the famine. And Joseph gathered up all the money that was found in the land of Egypt and in the land of Canaan for the corn which they bought." And Joseph brought the money into Pharaoh's house. And when the money failed in the land of Egypt and in the land of Canaan, all the Egyptians came unto Joseph and said, Give us bread, for why should we die in thy presence? For the money faileth. And Joseph said, Give your cattle, and I will give you for your cattle if money fail. And they brought their cattle unto Joseph. And Joseph gave them bread in exchange for horses and for flocks and for the cattle of the herds and for the asses. And he fed them with bread for all their cattle for that year. When that year was ended, they came unto him the second year and said unto him, We will not hide it from my Lord how that our money is spent. My Lord also hath our herds of cattle. There is not aught. "...left in the sight of my Lord, but our bodies and our lands. Wherefore shall we die before thine eyes, both we and our land, by us and our land for bread? And we and our land will be servants unto Pharaoh, and give us seed, that we may live and not die, that the land be not desolate." And Joseph bought all the land of Egypt for Pharaoh... for the Egyptians sold every man his field... because the famine prevailed over them. So the land became Pharaoh's. And as for the people, he removed them to cities... From one end of the borders of Egypt even to the other end thereof, only the land of the priests bought he not, for the priests had a portion assigned them of Pharaoh and did eat their portion which Pharaoh gave them, wherefore they sold not their lands. Then Joseph said unto the people, Behold, I have bought you this day and your land for Pharaoh. Lo, here is seed for you, and you shall sow the land. And it shall come to pass in the increase that ye shall give the fifth part unto Pharaoh, and four parts shall be your own, for seed of the field and for your food, and for them of your households, and for food for your little ones. And they said, Thou hast saved our lives. Let us find grace in the sight of my Lord, and we will be Pharaoh's servants. And Joseph made it a law over the land of Egypt unto this day that Pharaoh should have the fifth part, except the land of the priests only, which became not Pharaoh's. And Israel dwelt in the land of Egypt, in the country of Goshen, and they had possessions therein, and grew and multiplied exceedingly. Let's pray. Lord, once again, it is our privilege to gather together with our brothers and sisters in Christ in your house and in your presence. Lord, I pray and ask that you would help us to hear your voice through your word, and Lord, that we would be instructed by the spiritual teaching that is contained herein. Father, I pray and ask that you would help me to make apparent some spiritual truths tonight that every believer needs to know and that every believer uh, needs to fully enjoy. God, help us, help us to be prospering pilgrims, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. In this chapter, Jacob and his family arrive in Egypt. You know the backstory: The famine has come. Joseph has revealed himself to his brothers. He knows there's five more years of famine. It's the worst famine the world's ever seen to this point. And so he brings them down in Pharaoh's wagons and says, Hey, we will take care of you. And and so Jacob and his family arrive in Egypt, but they arrive in Egypt knowing that that this is a temporary stay, not a permanent home for them. In fact, when Joseph's brothers appear before Pharaoh in verse 4, they say that they have come into the land to sojourn. When Jacob is speaking to Pharaoh in verse 9, he speaks about his pilgrimage and the pilgrimage of his fathers. That word sojourn means to live in a foreign place temporarily, while on a journey and so they are fully aware of the fact that this is a temporary setting for them. This was part of God's plan for Israel. Uh, Jacob received clear revelation and vision from God about that, that they were to be temporary residents in this country and that this country was not to become their home. But What is astounding is that while citizens of this country are in deep poverty, as we just read, and that's why I wanted to read those 27 verses, because we see this drastic contrast between the citizens of the country who are spending all their money for bread, trading all their cattle for food, selling their land, and even selling themselves into indentured servanthood, Simply to survive, you have that on one hand, and then on the other hand, you have the family of Israel that are prospering, that are multiplying exceedingly, uh, that are growing herds, and that are experiencing really a great wave of prosperity, and it's not because they had a monopoly on industry. It's not that they were the rich sheiks who rolled into town and bought up all of the, uh, all of the oil supplies or something. It, it's not that. It is not that they are taking advantage of the poor, uninformed, ignorant natives. They have not come in and duped them out of their land for a few pieces of yarn and trinkets, right? Uh, that hits close to home. But it's because their brother their Savior had provided everything they needed to prosper, right? Everything that's happening in the lives of the family of Israel is contingent upon Joseph, their brother. But he's also their Savior. He's the one who saved them from certain death in the famine and has brought them into this place. And because of that relationship they are actually prospering in a situation where others are struggling. The two most prominent features in this chapter are the pilgrims and their prosperity. And so this title I've given to this section of Scripture is Prosperous Pilgrims. And I want us to focus on that because this serves as a great spiritual object lesson for the Christian life today. While you and I understand that, that, that we're not going to be in the same situation that they're in, that we're not in the land of Canaan, that we're not going to be relocating to the land of Egypt, we do understand that God recorded these words, these narratives, these histories for our admonition, for our teaching, for our instruction, and that He has embedded in them spiritual truth that we can learn through their journey. The two distinctives of God's people in Egypt are the same two distinctives that are supposed to be in God's people in the world today. And so I want us just to peel back the layers on this to see how it corresponds to our Christian life. And so we're just going to take a little time this evening. I I don't know if it'll be long or if it'll be short. You can pray one way or the other. Uh, But uh, really, only, only two features that we're looking back here. We're going to peel this back. And what we're doing is we're corresponding these two prominent features in God's people in Egypt that are also supposed to be the two distinctives in Christians' lives today in the world. Number one, they understood that they were pilgrims. They understood that they were pilgrims. They fully came into that situation knowing that Egypt was not their home, that that was a temporary place, that they were there, yes, by the providence of God, that they were going to be there, yes, for an extended period of time, but they knew that this was not their final Home. As a matter of fact, the verses that we didn't read at the end of the chapter is when Jacob is dying, and his request to Joseph is, "Take me home to bury me." And so home was in Canaan, not in Egypt. Notice that, Genesis 47 verse four, they said moreover unto Pharaoh, for to sojourn in the land. Are we come? Verse 9, I point out again, Jacob says, The years of my pilgrimage are 130 years. And that doesn't compare to the years of my father's pilgrimage. And so this was a prominent understanding in the lives of the people in Egypt. And I'm telling you, it should be a prominent understanding in your life and in my life that we are just pilgrims. We are just passing through. This world is not our home. You know, I was speaking to someone the other day and, about death and about funerals, and, and uh, just by the way, I counted up, I've done 28 funerals since I've been here. 28 funerals in five and a half years. And there is a distinct difference between the way a Christian dies and a non-Christian dies. A Christian has peace. They are looking forward to something. The non-Christian is clinging to this world because it is all that they know and all that they have. Just like Israel, you and I need to know that we are pilgrims in this world. We are just sojourning here. We are just passing through this world. World. Let's look at this in a couple of places. Uh, one, Exodus chapter 12. Exodus chapter 12, verse 40, God speaks to Moses. This is 400 years later. But notice how God classifies their time in Egypt. He says, in Exodus 12:40, now the sojourning of the children of Israel." Did you see it there? The sojourning of the children of Israel who dwelt in Egypt was 430 years. And it came to pass at the end of the 430 years, even the selfsame day, it came to pass that all the hosts of the Lord went out of the land of Egypt. So they knew they were sojourning. That was God's plan for their life. But you and I don't always have that same awareness. You see, they were living in the land of Canaan and then they moved down into Egypt before they go back. You and I were born into this world. And sometimes those attachments run deep and we cling to this world as if it is our home. But God says that our citizenship is not on earth, it is in heaven. If you have your Bible, let's flip over to the New Testament book of Philippians. Philippians chapter 3. Philippians is one of the rich epistles in the New Testament where the Apostle Paul writes 11 times about joy and rejoicing while the chains of imprisonment hang upon his wrist. Uh, It is an astounding study in joy. That alone gives testimony to the fact that there's something that Paul has in his life that other people don't have in theirs. That he can be imprisoned and chained up and yet still have joy. And he reminds us of what it is that can give us that type of joy in that type of situation. And he says in Philippians 3.20, For our... My, my version, the King James Version, says our conversation is in heaven from whence also we look for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, if somebody has a different translation, it might say citizenship in there. And, uh, and so uh, the old English word conversation, I prefer because not only does it imply the idea of citizenship, but that word in the Greek means more than citizenship. Right? You can be a citizen of another country and relocate and assimilate and, and uh, patriate into that new country and, and, and not carry with yourself the custom that you used to have. This word that's translated here doesn't just mean your citizenship is there, but your manner of life has been built by that. So your conversation, your manner of life, it wasn't just how you talked, It was how you lived. It was how you thought. It was how that you act. And so what Paul is reminding us as believers is, hey, look, brother, hey, sister. Our our citizenship, our way of life is not of this world. It is of heaven. And we are looking forward to when our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, comes back and takes us to be at home. And so we need to fully embrace the fact that that you and I are citizens of another country, that we are uh, of a different heritage, and that this world is not our home. Now, this can be a little difficult to do, I imagine, for the Israelites after the first generation passes away. Right? Jacob, Reuben... Judah, Asher, Dan, all those guys, man, they 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 have in their memories home. They left Canaan. They left houses. They left fields. They left wells. They're living in Egypt, and they have that still in their hearts. But you know, they don't go back home. They die. And another generation comes along who's never been to Canaan. And they live their entire lives in Egypt and they die. And another generation comes along. In fact, they spend 430 years in Egypt. But they never call it home. They are always looking to be delivered to their homeland. And I think the same is for you and I sometimes because we've never seen heaven. We've never walked through its gates. uh, We've never been there in that celestial city. Sometimes it's hard for us to see or to live in that reality. But do you realize there's a purpose in God's timeline and why he left them there for 430 years? Oh, this is good Bible study. Let's, Let's go back to the book of Genesis and let's go back to Genesis chapter 15 when God made his covenant with Abraham he actually foretold Abraham what he was going to do Abraham I'm going to make you a father of many nations. I'm going to make your offspring as the sand of the seashore, as the stars of the sky. I'm going to give you this land from the river Euphrates to the great sea and down uh, to the river in Egypt. It's all going to be yours. But Abraham, your, your descendants are going to spend 400 years in Egypt. And then I'm going to bring them back into the land. But in Genesis 15, God actually gives us some insight as to why they're spending that time there. Genesis 15 verse 13 says, And he said unto Abram, Know of a surety, that thy seed shall be a stranger in a land that is not theirs, and shall serve them, and they shall afflict them four hundred years. And also that nation whom they shall serve will I judge. And afterwards shall they come out with great substance. And thou shalt go to thy fathers in peace. Thou shalt be buried in a good old age. But in the fourth generation they shall come hither again. Watch, here it is. For the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet full. So two purposes In sojourning in Egypt, one was so that Israel would grow and multiply as a nation and in their wealth and possessions. So, over that 400 years, even though they went into slavery, somehow they still managed to keep their flocks. And their herds. And so when they leave, they take that stuff with them. But as you know, they also then borrow of their neighbors. And they basically bankrupt the nation of Egypt. And they take that wealth with them out of there. And so that was one part of it. God had them sojourning there for their benefit for the future. But the other side of it was God was showing grace and mercy to a people known as the Amorites. A group of people whom that was going to be judged and displaced from the land of Canaan when the Israelites come to inhabit the land. And God is giving them more opportunity to repent. As a matter of fact, when he speaks to Abram there, he says, they're going to last this long because their iniquity is not yet full. And it reminds me of what the Bible says in Second Peter chapter 3 when people were complaining about why hasn't God judged the world yet? Why hasn't God judged the evil yet? Why is this still going on? Peter reminds them that he says, Be not ignorant of this one thing, that one day is with the Lord as a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. The Lord is not slack or slacking off. As some men count slackness uh, concerning his promise, but is long suffering, you know the rest, don't you? To usward, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Why does God let us sojourn here? Well, it's the same two reasons that he gave for the people of Israel it is because he wants us to take some stuff with us. When we go home, and it's also because he's showing grace to the unbelievers here because he's not willing that they would perish. You say, what do you mean take stuff with us? I I didn't think we could take anything with us. We can take souls. We can win others to Christ. Why does God leave you and I on planet? Or why didn't He just take you to heaven when He saved you? I mean, avoid all of that messy sin stuff that you're going to get into. All those disappointments, those shortcomings, those failures that you and I uh, frustrate ourselves with and pray about and ask God to forgive us and to help us. Well, why does God go through all that? Why doesn't He just take us on out when we get saved? Because He wants us to reach other people with the gospel so that when we go to heaven, there are other people who are going to because we shared the gospel with them. The other reason is that God is giving grace to the unbelievers. That some people uh, spend much of their life in disbelief, but in God's grace, after years of being witnessed to with the gospel, they believe on Jesus Christ. And had God not been long-suffering, they would not have experienced that grace and that mercy. And so they understood that they were pilgrims. They understood, this is also part of number one, that that they were in the world but not of the world. You see, as pilgrims, they understood that, that they were not there to assimilate. Now, don't get me wrong. I believe that citizenship, practically speaking, requires assimilation. So if I am going to go become a citizen of another country, I should assimilate into that country. I should understand their laws, languages, all of those things. And if somebody's going to immigrate into our country, I believe that they should assimilate into our country. So that's one thing. That's not what I'm talking about. What I'm talking about is the fact that you and I should not assimilate into this world as believers. That you and I have this heavenly citizenship, this higher calling, this manner of life that this God-rejecting world knows nothing of. And that we should not adopt their customs. We should not embrace their ways. We should not applaud their sin. But that we ought to always be resolutely committed to our king and to his laws. And if you look at the nation of Israel, while they were in Egypt, they were sectioned off in a place called Goshen. And we're told it was the best of the land, it was the best to raise cattle, God gave them the best place. But we also know that they maintained those lines of separation for the entire 400 years that they were there. When God calls them out, the Jews are still living in Goshen. As a matter of fact, when the plagues start coming, do you remember the plagues fall all over Egypt except for in Goshen? There's darkness all over the land, but there's light in the houses in Goshen. And so there was that separation. They were in the world, but they were not of the world. Remember, Jesus prayed that for us, for his disciples, for his followers. In John 17, he says, I pray not that you take them out of the world, but that you would keep them in the world and that you would keep them from the evil of the world. And so we need to understand that we're pilgrims. We're in the world, but we're not of the world. Don't feel the pressure to conform to this world. As a matter of fact... Now, the Bible says, be not conformed to this world, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind. And so have a pilgrim mentality. You are sojourning here. This world is not your home. Number two, their relationship to their brother made them prosperous. Their relationship to their brother made them prosperous. Verses 11 and 12, notice Joseph placed... "...his father and his brethren, and gave them a possession in the land of Egypt, in the best of the land, in the land of Ramses, as Pharaoh had commanded. And Joseph nourished his father and his brethren." and all his father's household with bread according to their families. Look at verse 27. And Israel dwelt in the land of Egypt in the country of Goshen, and they had possessions therein and grew and multiplied exceedingly. And so these Jews were prosperous. Now, they were materially prosperous. They were physically prosperous. Uh, They were being nourished by Joseph. And again, we knew that it's all contingent upon their relationship with Joseph. They don't have to pay all of their money to get the bread. Joseph gives it to them for free. They don't have to trade all of their cattle to get the bread that they need to live on. Joseph gives it to them for free. They don't have to trade in their lands and their servitude. Joseph is the one who takes care of them. Why? Why? because they are his people they are his siblings they are his family and they prosper because of that now god has not promised you and i material prosperity don't don't believe them don't believe td jakes or the rest of the Creflo Dollars, any of those people that are telling you that if you plant some seed money in their ministry, it'll come back to you a hundredfold because God wants you to be prosperous. You, you will not find that in the clear teaching of the Bible. They, they twist verses, manipulate them to try and teach that. That's not what God promised. As a matter of fact, God actually guarantees that you and I will suffer a bit. That's what he promises. Yea, all that live God in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. Uh, count it not uh, odd when, when trials and afflictions come upon you. Uh, the trial of your faith is more precious than gold. So God actually says that, that we're going to experience some hardships. So how is it that I can make the claim that we, like them, ought to be prosperous because of our relationship? Well, for one, Jesus said in John 10, 10, I am come that they might have life and that they might have it more, you remember what that next word is? Abundantly. Abundantly. If Jesus didn't promise abundances of possessions, which in another place he says, a man's life consisteth not in the abundance of his possessions, then what is that abundant life that he's talking about? What do you think that is? Is it not the life of the soul? Is it not the Holy Spirit of God that comes to live inside of you and I that regenerates us and connects us to our Savior and gives us something that the world cannot buy with all the money that it has? There's been talk recently about uh, Michael Bloomberg, right? Bloomberg has thrown his hat into the... I like to throw out illustrations like this just to watch people get nervous that I'm going to launch into politics. Uh, they say that he is the ninth, eighth, or ninth richest person in the world he 's got somewhere around sixty billion dollars right seems like the comparison I heard was that Trump had like one billion, and Bloomberg has like sixty billion billion. those are numbers i don 't even understand you i mean my bank account, my checkbook, I mean, there's not even enough place to write that many zeros in, in a normal person's checkbook, right? Do you realize that a lot of times we sit around envying people because they look like they've got more money, more stuff, more toys, uh, more opportunities than we have? But let me tell you something. If Michael Bloomberg does not know Jesus Christ, he is bankrupt. And his $60 billion will not get him to heaven. It won't keep him out of heaven if he truly is trusting Jesus Christ. Let me tell you something. The most valuable thing in the world is not money. It's not houses. It's not possessions. Jesus said, what shall it profit a man if he gained the whole world, which, by the way, would cost more than $60 billion, and lose his own soul? Or what shall a man give in exchange for his soul? I'm telling you, Christian, you and I are the most prosperous people in the world when it comes to real prosperity. As a matter of fact, I want to take you to this passage in 3 John. 3 John, verses 1 through 4. John, the aged apostle, is writing to a friend of his named Gaius. He is praising Gaius for Gaius' participation in the gospel, the way that he has housed and helped missionaries and preachers along their way. But he says something in the opening lines of this little letter that has always stuck with me. And he says this in 3 John verse 1, The elder unto the well-beloved Gaius, whom I love in the truth, beloved, watch verse 2, beloved I wish above all things that thou mayest prosper and be in health, even as thy soul prospereth. Now, John's obviously talking about two different types of prosperity there, isn't he? He says, man, Gaius, I I pray that you are financially and physically prosperous. I, I, I pray, I wish, I hope that you are prosperous and in health in equivalence to your soul's prosperity. And you know what that tells me? That Gaius had something in his soul that made him rich. That he was prospering. Even though he doesn't have the riches, John wants him to have the riches to match his soul prosperity. What he does have is true prosperity, real prosperity. It is soul prosperity. What is that? Well, John goes on to elaborate a little bit more. He says in verse 3, For I rejoice greatly... When the brethren came and testified of the truth that is in thee, even as thou walkest in the truth, I have no greater joy than to hear that my children walk in truth. Just like we talked about this morning, the Christian worldview that is... Founded in Christ and centered on God is the truth. And Gaius was walking in the truth. He was a man of God. He was a man of the work. He was a man who had the Holy Spirit of God living inside of him. And that made him rich. Why? Because of his relationship with Jesus Christ. You see, if you have Christ, you have it all. Colossians says Christ is all. But if you don't have Christ, you have nothing. Jesus said, without me, you can do nothing. And so just like the Jews in Egypt, just like the Israelites in Egypt, they understood that they were pilgrims. And their relationship to their brother made them prosperous. You and I need to understand that we're pilgrims. Hey, you know what? You're gonna get, you might get disappointed this week. Man, you, you, might, you might have some bad experience, but don't let it get you down. You're just passing through. You're just passing through. Melissa and I had been married a, a short time. and We were in Bible college. I was in Bible college. And uh, we had just, just bought a car. We had bought a used car, a Mazda MX-6. Man, I thought it was cool. It was two doors. It was back before we had kids. And, and so we were taking our first vacation together, and we were going to Branson, Missouri to meet Melissa's parents. And so we went to Branson, Missouri and had our little vacation, and we're heading back to Knoxville, Tennessee. And we're coming down through Arkansas on Highway 65. And on Highway 65, the speed limit was 65 miles an hour, so I was probably doing <laughs> and uh, <laughs> South Mound. And it was a four-lane highway with a turning lane in the middle. So there were two lanes going south, two lanes going north, and there was a turning lane in the middle. Never been in Arkansas, but I, I, I was navigating my way through. We were heading towards Little Rock. And as we were coming through a little stretch in a place called Conway, I watched this big Chevy pickup pull into the turning lane and stop. Was as if he's waiting for me to go on by. And literally when we got feet away from him, he just turned. And I hit my brakes, but it was too late. We hit him broadside. We, we must have still been going 60 miles an hour. That little Mazda MX-6, if you know what, the, I mean, they were just little low-built cars. We hit that truck broadside. That truck went up on two wheels, teetered for a moment, came back down. After the wreck, I looked. It had broken two wheels off of the axle on that truck. We hit it so hard. And so here we are, Melissa was sleeping in the passenger seat. She'll never do that again. (laughs) With her feet on the dashboard, she got taken to the emergency room because she had glass all in her feet that she had to have taken out. But by the grace of God, if she would have had her feet in the floorboard, she'd have had a broken femur because it pushed that front wheel all the way up into that. But I am telling you, the only consolation I had that day was that I wasn't spending my life in Conway Arkansas we were just passing through and we it was it was on the weekend it was a Saturday there was no taxi cab service I called everybody I called the sheriff's office we it's not an emergency we can't help you I mean I literally was trying to find everything we didn't know anybody who lived there and finally some people who are in the emergency room says hey we'll we'll take you to Little Rock to the Arkansas to get a rental car if that's what you want And so we struck up a deal with them, and we got out of there. And uh, so, you know what? To this day, I have never wanted to go back to Conway, Arkansas. I was so glad I was just passing through. And so, you know what? Sometimes life feels like a car wreck. But just remember, this is not your home. You're passing through. You have a better place that you're going to. And God has a place for you. And by the way... Our relationship to our brother makes us prosperous. When we do come up against those hardships of life, we have something inside of us that the rest of the world doesn't have and they can't buy. We have a peace that passes all understanding. We have a hope that outlives sorrow. We have a Savior who will never leave us or forsake us. No matter what you face in this life, you have something that is worth more than all the money in the world. And so... Go out and realize that you are a prosperous pilgrim. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your word. Thank you for this great object lesson in scripture that reminds us that we are pilgrims and that we are prosperous because of our relationship to our brother, the Lord Jesus Christ. Father, I pray and ask that you would encourage folks with this tonight and the days ahead when they feel like they are on the outside or when they go through difficult times. May they be sustained by these truths from your word. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. If you would stand with me and let's sing number 434. I have decided to follow Jesus.